This is Don Hollenbeck for CBS News in Washington. It will soon be dawn this morning of March 9th, 1862, off the Atlantic coast of Hampton Roads, Virginia, 150 miles southeast of the capital. The next few moments we'll see the return of daylight to that pivotal point in the North's naval blockade of the South. And according to all experienced federal observers here in Washington, the coming moments may also see the return to Hampton Roads of the Confederate ironclad Merrimack. If the Merrimack can break out into the open sea, round Old Point at the southernmost tip of Maryland, proceed northward to attack the northern ports on the Atlantic seaboard, the most modern have been struck. Washington, on the dawn of the day that will see the decisive naval battle between the North and the South, between the Federals and the Confederates. CBS takes you back 86 years to the surprise engagement that ushered in a new era of sea warfare. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there, you are there. You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now... CBS News in Washington and John Hollenbeck. So heavy with foreboding and impending calamity. Here in Washington, there are grim faces at the White House, tight-lipped comment from officers at the Northern Department of the Navy. When reports first reached the Navy Department stating that the Merrimack was venturing forth out of Norfolk to challenge the Federal fleet, there were expressions of amusement and cynicism. Northern Navy officers laughingly imagined the ironclad as a humpbacked turtle grotesquely waddling her ineffective way through the rough waters. But then the Merrimack struck. Within a matter of hours, the northern sloop Cumberland was rammed and sunk. The 50-gun sailing frigate Congress was abandoned and on fire. And the 40-gun steam auxiliary frigate Minnesota was aground and helpless. At twilight, the Confederate ironclad retired toward Norfolk, leaving behind the question... What can be done to prevent the Merrimack from returning and destroying the entire northern fleet? That's the situation as we see it here in Washington this morning. However, CBS correspondent John Daly is now at Hampton Roads, aboard the frigate Roanoke, the flagship of the Northern Naval Squadron. So for a report from the actual scene of the expected naval battle, we switch you to John Daly, aboard the Roanoke. Merrimack has not been sighted as yet. Here aboard the Roanoke, daylight, daylight rather, is beginning to streak the eastern sky, but the sea is still shrouded in a heavy, swirling mist. Somewhere out in that mist, about a mile to my right on the riprap, federal tugs are desperately trying to release the battered Minnesota from the shoals on which she grounded yesterday. Perhaps you can hear the tug whistles in the distance. Also to my right, hidden by the mists and the angry water of the roads, by the hulks of the federal warships Congress and Cumberland, both of them sunk in yesterday's action. Right now, here on the Roanoke, every man jack is searching the curtain of mist that hangs over the sea, waiting and watching for the first sight of the Confederacy's juggernaut of destruction. The air is tense. The men seem calm and determined. There's no false optimism. The nearness of new fighting has produced a, a solemn, a quiet, well, almost a prayerful attitude among the officers and the crew. With me at our CBS microphone is Commander Prescott Singleton, one of the senior officers of the Roanoke. Commander Singleton, 
Do you think that the Merrimack is on her way to attack the fleet again, sir? Foregone conclusion. Well, what did you think of yesterday's engagement? Well fought, I should say. Well fought indeed. Well, do you happen to know who is in command of the Merrimack, sir? Yes. Uh, Captain is Franklin Buchanan. I'm told he holds the rank of Commodore in the Southern Navy. Oh. A good man. Knew him before the war. Knew him well. Uh, shipped together, the two of us. I see, sir. I, uh, I'm rather disappointed in him, I might say. Disappointed? In what way, sir? Well, it's, it's difficult to put into words, but in the Navy, we have traditions. Very high and proud traditions, I might say. I just cannot conceive of a good Navy man scouting behind iron plates. But don't you consider the Merrimack to be a very ingenious ship of war, sir? Well, yes, but uh, it's, uh, it's not the way to fight upon the sea. It, uh, it, it's unethical. Well, might I ask um, what you would think if you were given command of an ironclad? I'd resign my commission first. Well, then you feel, Commander Singleton, that the Merrimack is not a legitimate weapon of naval warfare? Absolutely not. The introduction of new and novel methods of warfare I must treat with repugnance. Men have been fighting on the high seas for centuries, according to certain basic laws of strategy. Nelson, John Paul Jones, Drake. In short, sir, the sea is no place for experimentation. But, sir, can anything prevent the Merrimack from further ravaging the northern fleet? We will stand against her. We will fight her bravely and gallantly. Count on that. Our hopes, sir, shall rest upon the good lord, good marksmanship, and good, solid New England oak. Thank you, Commander Singleton. The mist is still very heavy hanging over the water here, and there's still no sign of the Merrimack. So this is John Daly aboard the Roanoke. Now back to CBS Washington. This is Don Hollenbeck. A moment ago, you heard Commander Singleton, one of the senior officers aboard the northern flagship Roanoke, say that he knew the name of the Confederate captain of the Merrimack, and that raises an interesting question. How much advance information did the Northern Department of the Navy have on the Merrimack? Quincy Howe has just come from the Department of the Navy where he talked with Northern officers. Quincy, was the North aware of the fact that the South was building an ironclad? Uh, yes, Don, they were. Uh, the Navy Department in Washington, through various secret agents, has known all along that the Merrimack, uh, the South now calls her the Virginia, was being rebuilt uh, as an ironclad. You say rebuilt. The Merrimack then isn't an original construction. No, it seems not, Don. The Merrimack uh, was a wooden ship in the American Navy undergoing repairs at Norfolk Harbor uh, when the fighting began. Uh, because the federal forces couldn't uh, tow her off anywhere to safety, they scuttled her before they evacuated uh, the city of Roanoke. Then southern engineers came along, uh, raised up the burnt-out hulk, and converted uh, what used to be a graceful frigate into this present ugly, iron-coated monster of, of destruction. Well, then the North knew about the Merrimack in advance and didn't do anything to counter her because they discounted her power, is that it? Yeah, that, that's about the size of it, uh, Don. Uh, now, now, in the considered opinion of every northern naval officer whom I've talked to, there's only just one thing that can stop the Merrimack, and well, that's a miracle. There's no defense against the ironclad. The way she could withstand the concentrated fire of even the most powerful batteries that the North has to offer on land or sea, well, that's, that's shown that she can defy every weapon that the Federal forces now have at their command. Uh, then the Merrimack's iron plating permits her to get close enough to any opposing ship to drive home that ram of hers with deadly effect. Well, then, as it looks now, Quincy, nothing can stop the Merrimack. What then? Uh, the answer now just seems all too clear. Uh, the Confederacy will simply have broken the northern blockade. And just think what that means. Uh, up to now, the northern blockade of the southern ports, well, that's been the Union's most effective economic weapon against the Confederacy. The Merrimack, though, now threatens to destroy that weapon. 
And the result will be that cotton, cotton, the money crop of the South, will again start flowing across the sea. And in exchange, of course, the South will get cargo upon cargo of badly needed guns, ammunition, food, all the essentials of war. A victory by the Merrimack uh, would be likely to increase the war-making power of the Confederacy, oh, I guess maybe ten times over. Then there's this angle. England may decide to recognize the Confederate States of America as a sovereign nation and therefore entitled to all the international privileges of the belligerent. Another point, Quincy. What do you think this effect will be, the effect of the Merrimack? Now, what will it have on naval strategy in this country and around the world? Well, all I can say, Don, is everywhere I went, I heard people saying things like this. The era of the wooden ship is over. Every wooden war vessel now afloat, all the way from England's great ships of the line to the lowliest little corvette of the smallest nation. They've all become obsolete. Just in one day, we witnessed a complete revolution in maritime warfare. And no one Excuse me, Quincy, I'm sorry. A message, uh, we've just got a message from Douglas Edwards at Fortress Monroe, overlooking Hampton Roads. He has with him the wife of a federal officer who's just come through the southern lines. So we take you now to Fortress Monroe and Douglas Edwards. I'm in the correspondence room at Fortress Monroe. The young woman with me is Mrs. Lucy Creighton. Where is your home, Mrs. Creighton? Providence. Uh, will you speak a little louder, please? Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Mrs. Creighton, I know you must be very tired. You've had a long and hard journey, haven't you? Yes, I have. I've just come through the lines on a safe conduct path. I understand. But will you tell us, please, what you were doing in the South? My husband was wounded and taken prisoner at Fort Donaldson in February. It was only a month after we were married. They arranged to let me go see him. Mrs. Creighton, you were in Norfolk, Virginia last night. Uh, that's southern territory. Can you tell us, please, how the people there received the news of the Merrimack's victory yesterday? Well, they were very happy. They were shouting, dancing in the streets. They had a torchlight parade. I guess it must have been like that in every city of the South. Well, Mrs. Creighton, would you say, then, that the people of the South feel that the Merrimack is going to bring them victory in the war? Oh, yes. They were all saying that after the Merrimack sinks our fleet, it's going to go north and bombard Philadelphia and New York. They were sure it would do that. And they were yelling and shouting that the war would soon be over. Go on, please. When the Confederate officer who accompanied me last night took me back to the northern line... It was like riding through a carnival. When I reached the exchange point, the southern officer tipped his hat. He was very kind to me all the time, very nice. He tipped his hat and said that he was so glad the war would be over soon and we would be at peace again. There's no doubt then that the morale of the people of the Confederacy has been lifted tremendously by the events of the last 24 hours. Oh, I would say so, yes. All the time I was traveling in the South, I never saw anyone laugh or act like they were happy. Until last night in Norfolk, when the news of the Merrimack came. This is Don Hollenbeck at CBS Washington. We've interrupted Doug Edwards at Fortress Monroe because the Merrimack has been sighted. The immediate target seems to be the frigate Minnesota. Ken Roberts is aboard that ship, so now to the Minnesota and Ken Roberts. 
We can see the Merrimack. Just a few moments ago, the sun began to break through the overcast, and like a curtain rising on a stage, the mist lifted to reveal the squat and ugly form of the Merrimack, not more than a mile or two away, breasting the foam cat water. She looks like a slanting black rope afloat in the flood. The officers here aboard the Minnesota estimate the top speed of the Merrimack to be only five knots, so it will be some time yet before the Confederate ironclad comes into cannon range. Carries four guns on each slanting side, and one pivot gun four and another aft, making a total of ten guns in all. A side are sheathed in four inches of iron plate. All the Minnesota guns here are primed. The crew has been supplemented by many survivors of the Cumberland and the Congress, and directly above us we can see the big land-based guns of Fortress Monroe, also waiting for the Merrimack to come into range. The uh, tugs are still pulling at the Minnesota, trying to get her free. The officers of the Minnesota and the tugs calling to one another as they cast lines, tighten and pull, then recast, tighten and pull again. Up on the bridge of the Minnesota, I can see the officers clustered together, watching the approach of the Merrimack. They're a grim, silent group. Now, as I look across the water, I can see old Roy flying from the protruding mast of the Cumberland. Standing beside me is one of the survivors of that ill-fated ship, a young seaman taken aboard during the night after spending 14 hours clinging to a piece of wreckage. The Minnesota's commanding officer has given us permission to talk to him. What's your name, sailor? Charles Horman, seaman second class. What was it like yesterday, Charles? What was the feeling aboard the Cumberland when the Merrimack came up for the attack? Well, first off, we didn't think it was going to attack. We had our wash out on deck, and some of the boys were swabbing deck like as if nothing were going to happen. We didn't know. When, when did you clear for action? Well, it wasn't until almost she got into rain. Then what happened, Charles? Well, first, I don't know, but first I think the Congress started firing, and, and then we saw she was coming our way, so we began. Who was coming our way? The Merrimack. So we began firing. Did the Merrimack answer with her guns? No, sir, she didn't. It, it was the craziest thing. Listen, it was crazy. She, she didn't fire, not until she was so close we could almost reach out and touch her. That's how close I think. And, and then she let go with her foul guns. The shot went right through us, right just four and a half. Killed some of the boys, and those who were hurt started yelling and cussing. What happened then, Charles? Well, we fired everything we had out of then, everything, all the guns we had. And we could see our shells bouncing off the side, bouncing into the water. It was crazy, honest. And the Merrimack kept right on, coming closer and closer, and we couldn't even figure out what was happening. She just kept coming at it. And then it was like somebody or something had, had got under our ship and heaved us into the air. Into the air? Yeah. You couldn't see nothing, only hear wood breaking, and, and the other guys yelling, and we filled it over until the decks were awash. Go on, Charles. Well, when we righted the Cumberland began to lift fast because our whole underbelly had been ripped by the ram of the Merrimack. Just a, a chunk chewed out, and the water poured in. That was on the starboard side below deck. After that, there wasn't anything to do but jump, so I jumped. Believe me, I, I didn't even think about it. When Lieutenant Morris, who was, who was deck officer, yelled for us to jump, I just jumped and prayed. When I got in the water, there was a bunch of spar floating nearby, and I got a hold of it, and that was how I managed to save my life. Well, it wasn't the guns of the Merrimack that did the big damage then. It was the ram. Ram. It, it was the ram. Thank you for talking with us, Charles Harmon. Now, here's another sailor from the Cumberland, but one whose experience is even more incredible, more dramatic. Your name, sailor? Kavanaugh. Jimmy Kavanaugh. Bedford man. Well, every man who witnessed yesterday's engagement, Jimmy, is talking about your heroic effort to force the Merrimack. Tell us about it. Well, look, I don't know. It wasn't anything. You were aboard the Cumberland. Uh, yes, sir. Both the things. That's right. Go ahead, Jimmy. Well, uh... 
after we caught the broadside of the Merrimack, she came in so close that an officer on the Merrimack opened a porthole and yelled out, Surrender, Morris, or I'll sink you. That's Lieutenant Morris, deck officer of the Cumberland. Yes, sir, that's right. And you know something? Here's something awful funny. It turns out that the officer on the Merrimack was a Lieutenant Jones who went to Annapolis without a Lieutenant Morris. Is that so? Yes, sir. Well, what did your Lieutenant Morris reply? Morris? <laughs> Morris yells back, never, never, I'll think first. By this time, the Merrimack was under our deck. Actually, under the deck. So I jumped on it. I had two pistols stuck in my belt. I jumped on it. They killed so many of us, you see. My boys, they were. A hundred were dead, you see, and the others screaming and yelling. Well, I, I guess I lost my head, I guess. All I could think was that I wanted to get to that Merrimack and get even, see? For my boys to get even. Yes, go on, Jimmy. So, I didn't even think, I don't know. It happened like that, see? I don't know. I jumped over on the Merrimack and tried to climb her side. Get to the gun port. Uh, somewhere where I could see inside and let them have it with my gun. That's what I wanted to do, but it was so slippery. Like I greased for it. The iron was so slippery, I couldn't get a foothold or nothing. Every time I climbed up a little, I'd fall back in the water. Then I'd try again and fall back again. And all the time, the guns over my head were shooting, and the bang was making me dead, so... So I, I saw it was no use, see? And then... Well, by then, the Cumberland was rammed and sinking, so I dived back in the water and held on to some wreckage, and later they picked me up. That was a very brave thing you did, Jimmy. How did my kids they killed? I, I, I wanted to do something. That's all I wanted to do, you see? I know your action will be well rewarded. If I could have gotten a toehold. You see, it was like grease. The, the sides were so slippery. Thank you, Bolton Sage, Jimmy Cavanaugh. And now I have another sailor, a man who was aboard the Congress, who can give us a first-hand account of what happened there. His name is Pete Finley from New York City. Yeah, I sure wish I was there again. What's your rating, Pete? Ah, rating? Me? Uh, no rating for me. I'm just a member of the Naval Brigade. Well, that's kind of like the militia, isn't it? Not regular Navy. Yeah, not regular Navy, that's right. Well, what were you doing aboard the Congress? You better ask that of Father Abraham. You mean President Lincoln? That's what I mean. It was him who put us aboard that leaky old tub. Were there many naval brigade men aboard your ship? Three companies. What about the regular crew? It was this time, four or five days ago. Then I listened, what's up? We were put aboard to make it look like the ship was manned, I suppose. There wasn't even a single trained girl aboard. Can you imagine that? So when a Merrimack, she lets go of us, and we see the Cumberland going, so we run up the white flag. And you couldn't you... expect any different, now, could you? I know. We've not been trained for fighting, you know what I mean? Well, when it comes time, the white flag has gone up the mast, and I says to myself, I says, Petey boy, send the tank for you, and over the side I go. Over the side? Yeah, you couldn't expect no different. How could you expect different? Well, tell me, Pete, do you know when you'll get another ship? Me? Another ship? With that thing, that, that island boiler out there still wide and wild? Oh, no, sir, no part of the water for me, not for Petey Finley. The land for me, and I'll kiss it, so help me if I ever get these big feet to feel the land again, I'll... I'm, I'm sure you will, and thanks, Pete. Yeah, I'm glad you're sure, mister. Wish I was. Now, looking out to sea again, the Merrimack looms near us, smoke belching from her chimney, an ugly, misshapen monster. This is CBS Washington. We take you now to Jackson Beck, somewhere in Hampton Roads. Come in, Jackson Beck. 
my side, the young commander of this unique naval vessel, Lieutenant John L. Worden. Lieutenant Worden, suppose you answer that question for us. Just what is the monitor? Well, sir, we hope the monitor is the answer to the Northern prayers. The craft of unique design, the idea of John Erickson, the famous Swedish-American inventor. It's iron-hulled, surmounted by an armored circular turret, nine feet high, 20 feet diameter, covered with eight folded layers of one-inch iron. The turret and a little pilot house that lays forward are the only deck structures, except for smokestacks and exhaust grates, which we remove before going into action. I see. Uh, what about your armament, Lieutenant Worden, or is that restricted information? No, sir, it's no secret. We carry two 11-inch guards. Well, the reports we have of the Merrimack say she carries ten guns. Oh, that's true, but her guns are smaller and stationary. I see. Ours are fitted into a revolving turret. We can shoot in any direction without having to maneuver into a firing position. Well, then you think the monitor is an even match for the Merrimack, Lieutenant Worden? Oh, I think we're more than an even match, and we stand ready to prove it. Uh, can you tell us just how the monitor came to be here in Hampton Roads right at this crucial moment? <laughs> I guess, guess a good part of that is luck. Uh-huh. Uh, we set out from Brooklyn three days ago. Our orders were for us to head for Hampton Roads at full steam. And last night, we anchored in the darkness off the Roanoke, and one of our officers, my second-in-command, Lieutenant Sam Green, went aboard the Roanoke for orders. No one knew him, and he received his orders from the Admiral in secret. Now, these orders were clear and simple. We were to take up a position near the Minnesota and defend her from attack by the Merrimack. Well, we anchored in close under the Minnesota's lee side so that we were hidden from sight. Now that the Merrimack is coming in range, we're sending out to carry out our orders to defend the Minnesota. And we're going to do just that. How many men? What's that? Merrimack has opened fire. You missed. Merrimack's right, sir. Take over the firing carriage, Green. I'm going forward to the pilot house. The Merrimack has opened fire. The first salvo missed us by some 20 yards, but the concussion of the shells is tossing the monitor around like a cork. Here in the turret, the gun crew is stripped to the waist. There isn't enough room for a man to stretch out his arms. It's hot in here, and it's going to get that hotter. The crew is getting ready to fire. I got to need the Merrimack to pass through a tiny slit of the metal turret. It is stopped 1,000 yards away. The snouts of her cannon are smoking from that first broadside, and the second one should be coming. Where? The monitor has opened fire. We have opened fire. Fast is deafening. in Washington. The noise of the firing aboard the monitor makes it impossible to hear Jackson Beck, but John Daly aboard the northern flagship Roanoke has an excellent view of the action in Hampton Roads, so we switch now to him. Come in, John Daly, aboard the flagship Roanoke. The battle between the monitor and the Merrimack has begun. The Merrimack towering high above the water, and the tiny monitor, David and Goliath, the two ironclads, not more than a few hundred yards apart now, flinging tons of iron at each other's sides. It's a fantastic sight to those of us who covered other naval engagements. Both fitted spars, no ripped wooden hulls. The Merrimack guns are firing at will, and they keep up a steady hammering barrage. The monitor fires one gun at a time at intervals. 
the very first blow that the federal monitor struck sent the Merrimack reeling backwards, but just for a moment. She came right back in again, and now she's letting go with every piece that she has, and incredibly, that shot is just glancing off the rounded turret of the monitor without doing any perceptible damage, not a bit of it as far as we can see from here. The gallant little ship takes the full force of the shot without a tremor, without a sign of distress, and then she returns every salvo with a blast of her own. Her turret spins around as soon as one of her cannon is fired, and the second cannon is all loaded and ready to go. Right now, this fight has gotten so hot, the smoke is so thick, it's kind of hard to make out exactly what is going on, except that the two of them, the, the Monitor and the Merrimack, are actually standing toe-to-toe and slugging it out just like two bare-handed prisoners in the middle of a ring. Big blast of sound, they're just firing their guns as fast as they can load them. The Merrimack has just pulled out from the cloud of smoke, and she's leaving the Monitor. She's a very ironclad.
Christmas weekend draws to its end tonight with two fine comedy shows. One of them drawing laughs from a schoolroom and the other from a general store. At 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, our Miss Brooks finds Eve Arden starring as America's most unusual, at least unusually madcap, schoolmistress. And at 10, it's no secret, Lum and Abner, those famous storekeepers, relax with you in the laughter that comes from their famous store... The Jotham Down Store, located out in Pine Ridge, Arkansas. Climax your Christmas holiday with comedy in Our Miss Brooks and Lum and Abner tonight over most of these same CBS network stations. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> <laughs>